invite you, if you would, to take your Bibles and turn to Matthew 26, where we had our scripture reading earlier. If you're new to Omaha Bible Church, we're studying the life of Christ, the work of Christ. We're studying the good news of Jesus Christ according to Matthew. And we find ourselves in chapter 26 this morning. As we come to Matthew 26, you, you see that we're, we're opening a new door, if you will. And, and the hinges are turning and the door is opening. And we're getting closer and closer to the crucifixion of Jesus. Now I understand, and you understand if you've read Matthew, that, that with, with each chapter you're getting closer and closer because that's really the point. But we've, we've turned a significant corner now, and now the cross is in direct view. And as we get closer and closer to the cross, we end up seeing, specifically here in the text before us, a number of ironies. A number of ironies associated with Jesus. And we see them in Matthew 26, verses 1 through 16, which will be the passage we'll study this morning. And when I say there are a number of ironies associated with Jesus, uh, what I'm saying is there are things that seem very, very wrong. There are things that on the surface couldn't be wronger. And yet, when we look a little closer and we look deeper than the surface, these things that couldn't seem wronger, love saying that because it sounds wrong, the closer we look beneath the surface, those things that couldn't seem more wrong, not only do not detract from the greatness of Christ, not only do not take away from His sovereignty, they actually highlight it. And that's why I say they're ironies. Things that seem very, very wrong, and actually the closer you look, they're very, very right. Things that seem to detract from the sovereignty of Jesus Christ actually end up exalting Him as the sovereign King. And so I love the irony. There are four ironies that I will point you to this morning. Let me preview them now. Number one, in Matthew 26, the first irony of the cross, the irony of crucifixion itself. The irony of crucifixion found in verses 1 and 2. The second irony that ends up exalting the sovereignty of Christ. Irony number two, the irony of Jewish rejection. Verses 3 to 5. The irony of Jewish rejection. The third irony that ends up exalting Christ is the irony of wasting money on Jesus. The irony of wasting money on Jesus. I put wasting in quotation marks lest God strike me dead just for writing it. The irony of wasting money on Jesus in verses 6 through 13. And the fourth and final irony we'll look at this morning that ends up exalting Christ is the irony of betrayal. The irony of betrayal in verses 14, 15, and 16. Four ironies that beneath the surface exalt Christ instead of detract from Christ. The first irony of Christ's passion that highlights His sovereignty is the irony of crucifixion. I don't even need to read the passage. And and if you know anything about the Bible, you know that to say that Jesus is crucified... Seems wrong. Nothing could seem more wrong than that. The the, the irony of it is, it's actually 
ultimately good and right. But let's go ahead and see it in the passage. Matthew 26, verse 1, when Jesus had finished all these words, He said to His disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man is to be handed over for crucifixion. And and that is just shouting irony. It's just demanding us to, to pay closer attention and to say, again, this seems so wrong. And yet, it's actually so right. So let's look at some of the details in those first two verses. I mean, it starts with the fact that, that Jesus there refers to Himself as the Son of Man in verse 2. The Son of Man is going to be crucified. And I just ask you to, to draw upon your, your memory from last time when we looked at this Son of Man title for Jesus, which ultimately comes from Daniel chapter 7. I believe it's verse 13. It, it's, it's not a title in Daniel 7.13 for humility. It's a title for His messianic position, that He is the King, that He is the Sovereign One, that He is in control and He is in charge. So here in our text in Matthew 26, where it's the Son of Man will be crucified, these, these things don't really seem to fit. These things don't really seem to complement each other. The Son of Man crucified? I mean, the, the Son of Man who is the Messiah, who is the King, should be, should be met with embrace, should be met with welcome, should be met with, with, with great praise and thanksgiving, should be met with, with boasting and, and all of these great things. The Son of Man coming shouldn't be met with rejection, shouldn't be met with death, and certainly shouldn't be met with crucifixion, the most heinous of deaths. The Bible tells us in both Testaments that everyone who is, who, who is hung on a tree is cursed of God. It's a horrific death. The Son of Man... Cursed of God? This is rather strange if we don't know the rest of the story. And not only that, the, the, the title Son of Man, that, that tells us there's something crazy about this, at least on the surface. But how about the context? The context, too, is shouting, Irony! Because do you see there in verse, 20, uh, verse 1 of 26 when Jesus had finished all these words? Note the connection. No doubt referring to Matthew 24 and 25, what he's already been talking about, the Olivet Discourse. And if, they, and if Matthew 24 and 25 are about anything, they are about Jesus is the King. Jesus is, is the Son of Man. Jesus is the Sovereign One. Jesus is Supreme. Jesus is great. And not only that, Jesus is, is the Sovereign One who's Supreme, who's coming to earth one day, and He's going to judge to the point where the very end of chapter 25 ends up saying he's going to welcome some into his father's kingdom. He has the power and ability to do that and he is going to condemn others to an eternal hell. It's just boasting greatness, power, authority, sovereignty. And we see in our text when Jesus had finished all these words about His greatness, He goes on to say, I'll be crucified. It couldn't be wronger. Right? At least on the surface. It's just a huge contrast. 
that we're supposed to see. But let me remind you, and hopefully you're reminding yourself already, that Jesus, by being crucified, is not a victim of circumstance. Right? Not a victim of circumstance. Because Jesus has been planning for this all along and to the point where now he's saying, this is when it's going to happen. What's pretty interesting, and we'll see it later, is this is actually when the religious leaders don't want it to happen and they say it won't happen then. Jesus says it will happen then and guess when it's going to happen? It's going to happen when he says during the Passover. But this isn't new. Jesus has been talking about this all along throughout Matthew's account, throughout his whole life, because that's why he came here to begin with. I do want you to see it so you can understand that this is, this is on Jesus' schedule. This is on, according to his time frame, Matthew 16. If you go to Matthew 16, we'll just look at a sampling. But just to have it in our minds, what seems so terrible, so horrible, and it is, certainly on one level, and what seems like such a crisis of circumstance is actually happening according to the sovereign plan of Jesus as he intends. So it seems so wrong in one sense, because it is so wrong, right? but in one sense is so right because it's according to his plan. Well, look at Matthew chapter 16, verse 21. You'll see there, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, that's where he is now, and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. See, he's been talking about this. He was actually even talking about it before then, but there's a specific example. Matthew, how about Matthew 17, verse 22? Let's get the flow. Let's see, see this is happening. Matthew 17, verse 22. If you look there, you'll see. And while they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. They were deeply grieved. How about Matthew 20? If you turn over just a couple of pages or so, and you'll see essentially the same thing. Matthew 20, look down at verse 18. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And then, just for good measure, let's see what it says according to John's account. John chapter 10, verse 18. You can just listen for now. Listen to what Jesus says. And hear sovereignty control. No one has taken it away from me. He's talking about his life. No one has taken it away from me, but I, Jesus, lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again, this commandment I have received from my Father. So, remember, folks, what looks so wrong, and it is morally, absolutely. It is murder, absolutely. It is horrendous, absolutely. And on another level, it is so right. And it is so good because it is God's perfect unfolding of His perfect plan for redemption, right? This is all about exalting Christ. This is, this is phenomenal. It's all according to His sovereign design. Back to verse 2 of Matthew 26. The Passover is coming and the Son of Man is being handed over for crucifixion. He's going to do it during Passover. That's when it's going to happen. They don't even want to have it happen during that time and that's when He's going to have it happen because He's in charge. 
Jerusalem, from what we know, is pretty amazing during Passover because what's happening? You've got some... 2 million, some, some want to say 2,750,000, 2 million people. It's a small community. Jerusalem is small. And so in Jerusalem, smashing into Jerusalem and all the outer surrounding communities, you've got all of these 2 million plus people smashing in, not to mention all the animals that they're bringing for sacrifice. It was a sight to be seen. Why? Because it is, it is their, their commemoration. It is their celebration. It is their, their great act of, of commemorating what God had done for them by delivering them out of the oppression, out of the slavery from the Egyptians. The Passover, you know the account. Certainly fresh in my mind because I've been reading Exodus so much lately. But you know the account where, where God is going to, to kill the firstborn. God is going to judge the Egyptians for what they've done to His people Israel. And they end up being told by God to sacrifice a lamb. And they, what do they do? They take the blood and they put the, the blood on the outside so that the angel of death will pass over Atonement has been made. They pass over. Well, well, this really happened, and this happened in, in their life, and it's it's tied in with their their freedom from bondage. It's it's tied in for, for tied in with their being being set free and their freedom, the redemption, if you will. Well, what are they doing? They're gathering to celebrate this, and and how great God is, and how God delivered them, and how wonderful it is, and. Makes all the sense in the world that Jesus would specifically plan and intend and make sure that he, in fact, is betrayed and then crucified during Passover. The Apostle Paul refers to Jesus as the great Passover lamb. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. Christ our Passover. It's all by design. King crucified? Scratch your head. By design, according to the king's free plan. Ah, oh, this is good. What a great savior. What a great king. That's why we worship him. He's not a victim of circumstance. How could I worship a victim of circumstance who's not in charge and in control? Worship is reserved only for God, who is supreme. That's why we'll worship Jesus. I love that, don't you? I love it. Well, let's move on to another irony. The second irony of Christ's passion that highlights His sovereignty is the irony of Jewish rejection. Verse 3, look with me, you'll see there. Then, and I'm not going to get any further than that because I think uh, along with a lot of other Bible students, that's strategic and on purpose and it has a flashing light on it that says, Sovereignty of Christ! He says it's going to happen, and it's going to happen, happen during Passover. And then, and only then, he goes on to talk about what the bad guys are going to do. And he says, then, see, this happened according to his plan. Then, after Jesus spelled out what was going to happen so that we would know it was going to be by divine design, then the chief priests and the elders of the people were gathered together in the court of the high priest named Caiaphas. It just has God's fingerprints all over it. Then that happens. They're subservient to Him. Who's involved here? We've got the chief priests. They're representative of the Jewish aristocracy. 
power brokers. You've got the elders of the people. And I never use this phrase referring to people in the church because I, I don't like the phrase, but we use it so much you'll know exactly what I mean. The, the elders of the people, they're the lay people. They're the lay leaders. So you, you, you've got those on the payroll, chief priests, and you've got the lay leaders, the elders of the people. Did you notice that the Pharisees aren't there? That means the Pharisees are good. <laughs> Pharisees are bad. But if we had to guess why the Pharisees aren't here, we'd have to say it's because the Pharisees were more interested in theology, as messed up and bad as it was, than they were with politicking, as these other individuals were, like the chief priests. And then we have the high priest named Caiaphas. Just kind of an interesting historical note regarding Caiaphas. Let me give you the lowdown on this gem of a guy. Okay? Interesting historical note. I'm just going to read from James Montgomery's helpful, uh, James Montgomery Boyce's helpful commentary on Matthew. The leading figure in the plot to arrest and kill Jesus was Caiaphas, the high priest. Caiaphas had been appointed high priest by uh, Valerius Gratus, Pilate's predecessor in AD 18, about 12 years earlier. He was the son-in-law of Annas, the hereditary high priest, who had served from AD 6 to AD 15 until the Rome, Romans deposed him. Caiaphas survived until AD 36, which means that he held his office for 18 years. This tells us something about him. Held his office for 18 years. Between 37 BC and AD 67, when the last of the high priests was appointed just before the destruction of the temple, the Romans appointed and deposed no less than 28 high priests. If Caiaphas survived for 18 years, it could only have been because he was a shrewd politician who wanted to hang on to power at all costs. I gave you the lengthy quotation to make the point. He was a great and effective politician. Nobody lasted like Caiaphas lasted. He was really good at working the system. He was very effective during his time in bed with Rome. So, with Israel's best and most upstanding religious leaders gathered, read sarcasm. Verse 4, look, they plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth or deceit or bait and kill Him. Okay, think about it. I mean, the obvious is profound. Jewish religious leaders who have been talking all about Messiah, especially during Passover. I mean, I mean this is the, the big event. And they're leading the people of Israel. And they're talking about Messiah. And there's probably a messianic expectation and fervor because of Roman oppression. And they're the ones who are the Bible guys. And they're the ones who are faithful. And there they are leading in all of this. And, and they've been showing everyone, wink, wink, about how when Messiah comes, we'll submit to Him and follow Him and, and, he, and he will rescue us. The only problem is Messiah has come. We know. And he's shown himself to be Messiah. He'd do the works of Messiah. Have the affirmation of God as Messiah. He's the real thing. And what do they do? The irony is, they plot to kill him. That's the irony. It's the obvious irony. So how could that highlight the supremacy or sovereignty of Christ? 
I have a list. Thank you for asking the question. <laughs> what seems so wrong is actually exalting to Christ because the, the, the most obvious one that we would tend to be, forget right away is Jesus didn't submit to their leadership. He shows that he's above them and he's been showing that all throughout Matthew's account and all the accounts and everything in the Bible. He's above them. He's the king. They're the power brokers. And he says no to them. You're wrong. He shows that he is superior to them. The sovereignty of Jesus is also demonstrated right here by that statement I already drew your attention to in verse 3. Then... It only happens after he sets the record straight about what's really going to happen. His sovereignty is also emphasized, not just in this passage per se, but when we go outside of this passage to talk about this account, we see that this is happening according to the predetermined plan of God. Acts chapter 2. Right? God's drama of redemption is unfolding according to God's timetable not these powerful, quote-unquote, religious leaders. The sovereignty of Jesus is also demonstrated right here in light of verse 5. Look with me. They plotted to kill Jesus, and in verse 5, but they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise a riot might occur among the people. And given who they are, and given who they're collaborating with, if they say it's not going to happen during the Passover, it's not going to happen during the Passover. Unless Jesus is in charge, and He is, and so it will. Don't you like it? Makes me just think, cross my arms and say, I'm with Him. <laughs> yeah! These guys are a bunch of street thug punks. Because Jesus is the King. But they weren't street thug punks. They were, re- they were religious power brokers. You don't get hired. They're the chief priests. Well, the chief priests are nothing. So we're talking about the supremacy of Christ. Jesus Christ, worthy of our praise, worthy of our worship. Jesus already has said in verses 1 and 2 when it's going to happen, it's going to happen during Passover. Now, just, just to pause for a moment and maybe if I could dialogue with you a little bit, especially maybe you're new to Christianity, maybe you're new to this whole account, maybe you're not, and you, maybe you're, you're asking yourself the question, now, why would anyone want to kill Jesus? That's a good question. Why would they want to do this anyway? Well, I think they would want to kill Jesus for the same reason that every religion on planet earth and all who subscribe to every religion on planet earth other than the one that Jesus authored, the true version of it, would want to kill Jesus. I think they want to kill Jesus for the same reason that apart from the grace of God, I would want to kill Jesus. I think they would want to kill Jesus for the same reason that apart from God, every single person here today and on planet earth and who has ever lived would kill Jesus if they could. You know why? 
And quite frankly, I think if you don't, if you, if you, have, if you don't, maybe you haven't thought of it in those terms. If, but if you really, if that doesn't really make sense, I don't think you really understand Christianity. Risky statement, I know. Because Jesus is the author of the religion that says all people everywhere since the time of Adam and Eve are bad people. It's in the Old Testament, Psalm 14, one example. It's in the New Testament, Romans chapter 3. Jesus says everyone's bad. Therefore, everyone's religion is bad. Jesus had this religion that he starts based upon his book. There is nothing you can do, even with the help of your religion, to escape hell. Because you're a bad person and you do bad things and God is just and you deserve to go to hell. And the angels will worship Him for it. This is really bad. And you know what? Again, apart from the grace of God, somebody tells me I'm a bad person and I deserve to go to hell and there's nothing I could possibly do in and of myself to escape it and that I would kill Jesus if I had the opportunity. I don't like that person. And yes, in fact, I would kill Jesus if I had the opportunity. If you don't come to that conclusion, you've overestimated yourself and you've underestimated God. This is just normal. This is just natural. Because Jesus is, is shining the light of truth and exposing the human heart that somehow perversely wants to, 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 to find God and get close to God and be reconciled to God through means other than God's means. God's means are grace and grace alone. Grace is unmerited favor. If somehow it has something to do with, I, with what I do, then, then somehow I have good in me. The Bible teaches the exact opposite. So have that in your mind. These guys are bad guys and they want to kill Jesus. But know this for certain. I, as a pastor, will say, apart from the grace of God, I would be there with them. I remember one time I was, I was talking to a, a woman and she found out I was a pastor. And it was one of those just wonderful God-orchestrated days. At least it seemed like it because she asked me all these questions that I just absolutely love to answer. And I was there, and, and she found out I was a pastor, and her first question was, this is a great question. I mean, this is, this is better than the way I would arrange it in my mind. She said, what do you think about hell? And it was one of those moments that, that God was just extra gracious to me, giving me something profound to say, because I'm not a profound person. I said, well, that's a great question. I guess the first thing I would say is that I should be there right now. And she's like, you know, because I'm the high holy man who she expected to have a backwards collar on and, you know, do everything backward because I'm the holy man. And she expected me to say that she should go to hell. And it was great because it gave a, opened up a great door of opportunity to talk about the gospel and what the gospel really is, which is not self-help. Well, I just bring all that up because, again, if we're not familiar with the Bible and if we haven't been working through, whether it be Matthew's account or anywhere else in the Scripture, it is a strange, strange, strange idea to have God's perfect Son come to earth and have the religious leaders who are associated with the right religion wanting to kill Him. It's strange. But it's not that strange given the human heart. So let's keep moving. 
These villains, these spiritual villains are preparing for Jesus' death. Well, as they're preparing for his death, someone else is preparing for his death in a different way. A third irony of the cross, highlighting his sovereignty. Number three, the irony of, the irony of wasting money on Jesus. Wasting money on Jesus. Look at verse 6. Now, when Jesus was in Bethany, now, I have to just point something out in case you're reading the other gospel accounts. This is confusing, potentially. Matthew here is not following the chronology. And that happens sometimes in different gospel accounts because they want to emphasize something that already happened. Well, we have a marker here that says, now when Jesus was in Bethany. So that's why some writers uh, talking about this, they talk about this as a flashback. All right, this is a flashback. At the home of Simon the leper, so he's either dead by this time or he's not a leper anymore or they probably wouldn't be in his house. Verse 7, a woman. It's Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, according to John's account, came to him with an alabaster vial. It's expensive. A very costly perfume. It tells us it's expensive. And she poured it out on his head as she reclined, as he reclined at the table. John chapter 12, verse 3, also tells us that she anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. Now, apart from the fact that it's very costly, this is just normal stuff. It's not normal stuff to you. If you come to our house, don't expect us to break an expensive vial, a very expensive perfume, and pour it on your head. And don't do that to me if I come to your house either. But this is normal, as foot washing would have been normal. Dry, arid climate. They're not driving their Toyotas or their Chevrolets or whatever it may be. This is showing love. It's showing hospitality. It's showing honor to a guest. But something about this is extraordinary. What's extraordinary here is that it's very costly. Verse 8, but the disciples... They were indignant. I think it helps if you say it with your teeth together. They were indignant. They may have been trying to hide it, but they're they're mad. When they saw this and, and, and said, by the way, John 12 tells us that Judas is their spokesman, and said, why this waste? We would say, well, what, are, what are you doing? What are you thinking? And then, notice the self-piety kicks in. Verse 9. I wish I could do great impressions. I would try to sound all, you know, Gandhi-like or, you know, whatever the, the example would be of some person who externally kind of makes their living on sounding very, very pious and very, very holy. Can't do it, though. I tried first hour and it was a disaster. So. <laughs> But this perfume might have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. John's account tells us that it was so costly, it could have been sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor. This is a small fortune. This is, this is breaking out the good stuff. The really good stuff. And they're all pious. I probably would have been too. Thinking logically, thinking practically. <laughs> you know? 
And after all, Jesus tells us to love our neighbor. So a direct application of that is doing things for the poor. That's good and legitimate. So I'm going to quote Bible verses to Mary and say, you're so immature. You're so impulsive. There you go, being emotional again. That was a lot of money. What were you thinking? We could do the Lord's work. Right? That's what I would have done. Hopefully I wouldn't have sounded like Gandhi, but that's what I would have done. You probably would have too. It's good to help the poor. So what's the problem? Keep reading. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, and he certainly didn't sound like Gandhi, Why do you bother the woman? For she has done a good deed. And I'm going to emphasize this in light of the context. She has done a good deed to me. And then comes his uber logic. Okay? They're using logic and he's going to do even better with his logic. For you always have the poor with you. That's logical. But you do not always have Context would call for me. For when she poured this perfume on my body, I'm Messiah, I'm King, I'm the ultimate one, I'm the Son of Man, she did it to prepare me for burial. So whether she knew she was doing the right thing or not, and that can be debated, she did the right thing. She totally did the right thing. I mean, if there's ever a good use for costly, small fortune, perfumed oil, this was it. There was never a greater occasion. There was never a greater need or use for something like this than this. And Jesus even says, you know what? This, this is perhaps more than any of you even realize or you're even thinking about. This is preparing me for burial cross is coming I can't miss the application and I hope you can't miss some of the application here as we take special notice of the fact that it is possible to try to sincerely obey the commands of Jesus over here like reaching out and loving the poor which is right and good it's possible to seek to do that at the expense of loving, worshiping, honoring Jesus. Put another way, it is possible to be focusing on what Jesus said to do and miss Jesus. Now, I don't want to give a big disclaimer and take away from what I just said. Please note, I am not suggesting that we shouldn't do what Jesus says. After all, Jesus is the one who says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Like loving your neighbor. You will do this. So that's an act of worship. Loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving our neighbor. That's absolutely worship to Jesus. It certainly can be. Should be. But let's not miss the fact that here, they are talking about doing what Jesus says to do and in the name of doing that they're missing Jesus 
I can put that in my pocket and take it home with me and let it rattle around in my mind and change the way I think. And I would suggest that that happened in your life too. That's, that's good stuff to meditate on and to think upon. What's so ironic here is that this woman is wasting something and in one sense she's wasting it. We can understand their argumentation. It's logical. The other side of it is her waste ends up being affirmed by Jesus as good and right and worship. How about another little bit of application? There's a high probability, I believe, that people can watch what you do as you worship Jesus Christ, as you seek to seek Jesus Christ, as you seek to honor Him, and as you seek to love Him with your life and with your best. That other people, religious people, who are even associated with Jesus, like disciples, could mistake your devotion to Christ as waste. I love Jesus Christ. I don't know about you. (laughs) He's the king. What seems wrong here by this woman, what we might have seen as wrong, he says, no, that's good. It's good because it's getting me ready for what I'm going to, to do. If anyone is deserving of the greatest, it's me. And by the way, if Jesus were anyone other than Jesus, he would have been wrong to accept it. Verse 13, let's keep going. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel, wherever this good news message, perhaps this good news message of the Passover lamb, wherever this gospel, Matthew's gospel account, certainly it's referring to the good news about Christ, however you slice it. Wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, that's assuming that it is, that this woman has done, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. It's good. Jesus is too nice to point this out, but isn't it interesting also that we were just talking about the boneheadedness of the disciples. Wherever this gospel is proclaimed, she will be honored for what she did and they will be made fun of. Now, Jesus doesn't point that out, but... We see, glaring off the pages of Scripture. We want to be like this woman in that sense. It's kind of interesting. Someone noted this. I wasn't smart enough to figure it out. But they they took note of the fact that, that, that this woman, on three different occasions, is at the feet of Jesus. This is the last of three. She sat at His feet and listened to the Word in Luke chapter 10. She came to His feet in sorrow after the death of Lazarus in John chapter 11. And here she is, anointing His feet with ointment. And then they they summed it up in this way. She found at His feet her blessing. She brought to His feet her burdens, and she gave at His feet her best. Sounds pretty good. Well, the next striking contrast, or the next... Irony is in striking contrast to this. We come to the fourth irony and we'll get things wrapped up here rather quickly. Verse 14, we see the irony of betrayal. Then one of the twelve. Again, I'm not trying to add to the Bible, but I'm just trying to remind you of context, okay? In light of Matthew 10, 
Let me read it this way. Then one of the twelve, one of the twelve disciples of Jesus, one of the twelve Jesus chose himself, lest we think this is tragedy, entirely so. Then one of the twelve, named Judas Iscariot, Luke 22, 3 tells us Satan has entered his heart by this time, went to the chief priests and said, What are we, you willing to give me to betray him to you? And they weighed out 30 pieces of silver to him. From then on, he became, began looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus. And I ask you, what could be darker than this? Well, there are things that could be darker than this, but this certainly ranks right up there with really dark. Betrayal, by definition, is ironic in one sense. It assumes closeness. It assumes relationship. It assumes privilege. And then it is all thrown under the bus. Look, he's betrayed by, for, for 30 pieces of silver. What do you think? That's a lot or a little? Because you know back then, you know, 30 pieces, that might, no, it's not a lot. Maybe even taken from Zechariah chapter 11, verses 12 to 13. And I'll warn you, if you take the time to go there, if you read Zechariah 11, 12 to 13, at first, you're going to read it and you think, man, 30 pieces of silver is a lot. Read the context, think about it. It's using sarcasm. <laughs> 30 pieces of silver, as if that's a lot. It's, it's relatively nothing for a life. According to Exodus chapter 21, 30 pieces of silver, that's what you pay for in return for a slave who is accidentally gored by an ox and dies. Jesus is betrayed for the same amount of money that the Old Testament says would be paid if you have a slave who dies by accident. This is wrong. This is wrong. This is not very much money for a life, not to mention who Jesus is. He's the King of Kings, 30 pieces of silver. It's wrong. So you're perhaps saying, well, then how could this be right? How could this be irony? How could this exalt the sovereignty of Christ? Well, it could exalt the sovereignty of Christ because based upon what we know from Scripture, Judas was chosen as a disciple and Jesus knew full well what was going to happen. It was according to plan. Yes, Jesus is accountable. Yes, absolutely he's accountable as all of these other people who are against Jesus are accountable. But make no mistake about it that Judas was not chosen as one of the twelve and then somehow Jesus later found out that he was bad. Listen to John chapter 6 verse 70. Jesus answered them, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Now that's not ironclad evidence that Jesus chose him knowing full well, but it gets really close. I think it is evidence. But the nail in the coffin, so to speak, adding John 6.70 to John 17.12, listen to this. While I was with them, Jesus is talking to his Father, while I was with them, I was keeping them, talking about his disciples, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the Scripture would be fulfilled. Put the two passages together. I have no doubt in my mind whatsoever 
not to mention what we know about the attributes of Christ. Jesus chose Judas, knowing in his mind, because he's sovereign, because he is the king, that Judas was going to betray him. Because after all, why did Jesus come to earth anyway? Ultimately, to go to Jerusalem, to be betrayed, and to be crucified on a cross. So again, what appears to be absolute tragedy, absolute triviality, 30 pieces of silver, once again, causes us to see the greatness of Jesus Christ because it's all happening according to plan. Final question. Some of you might be thinking it. What's practical about this? How does this this help me with my life, Pastor? This is all fine and good. I mean, it's it's all fine and good to talk about Jesus as the King of kings and Lord of lords, and He's sovereign, and He's in control, and He's in charge, and everything's going to happen according to His plan, and how great He is, and how supreme He is, and how even things that are bad are happening according to bad people. Ultimately, He's orchestrating, and He's in charge, and He's the King, and He's worthy of worship. What's practical about that? What's practical about that is by you asking the question, it gives me an opportunity to tell you to repent. (laughs) Folks, if it's not practical for us to be impressed with Jesus Christ and how great He is and how awesome He is and how in control He is of His perfect redeeming plan... If that's not practical, then you, you, don't, you don't get it. You don't get it at all. And you've, 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 you've bought a load of goods from some huckster that is somehow trying to convince you that life is all about something other than Christ. Yes, we have complicated lives. Yes, we need to know how to do things. And the Bible talks about how to do things and even how we're supposed to help each other learn how to do things that are quote-unquote practical in life. But ultimately, in the end, what fuels even all of that and what ends up being more important than all of that because it's going to last forever is who is Jesus Christ and and how should I respond to Him? Worshiping Him. To the point where people in the Bible would say things like, Christ, who is our life. To live is Christ. And Paul wasn't suggesting that he live in a monastery and do nothing other than read his Bible and have a quiet time. His life is pretty amazing and filled with complexities and filled with all kinds of things. Ups and downs, trials and tribulations. Living a life in that sense like we live our lives. And you know what was practical and carried the day in the practical nature of his life? The fact that he wasn't consumed with his stuff and the trivialities and all everything else, he was consumed with Jesus Christ. Please, please, if you get this at all, please beg, beg for people who are going to tell you they're preaching a sermon that they would tell you about how great Christ is. It's about him. It's all about him. And that ultimately really is what changes a life and makes everything else doable. Christ who is our life. That, that, that's, that's the Christian message. That's, that's everything to us because He is everything to us. And so we love learning about how great He is. 
and the trials will come and the tribulations will come and we're supposed to, to interact with each other and we're supposed to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And yes, we're supposed to be there for each other. But ultimately, at the end of the day, it doesn't end well for us on this earth. You can buy all the vitamins and supplements you want. You can buy three gym memberships. I've had two at the same time. I've had three. It doesn't work. <laughs> I mean, ultimate, as good as all that stuff is, ultimately, at the end of the day, it's about Christ. It is about Him. And keeping our eyes on the prize, if you will. So let's pray and exalt Him and thank Him for how practical He is. God, thank You for Your great and amazing Son. That He could take all of this, what seems to be wrong and bad, and, and, and show Himself. To show that His fingerprints are all over this. That He is not some 98-pound weakling who couldn't be in charge of anything. He's, he's Jesus. He's, he's the Christ. He's the Son of Man. He's the King of Kings. He's worthy of our praise and worthy of our worship. God, may our lives be about Him even as we face the other issues in life. God, may the life of Omaha Bible Church be about Him even as we face all kinds of other issues. Father, You tell us in Your Word that these matters we talk about are of first importance. May it show in the way we do ministry as a church. May it show in the way we live our lives. May it show in everything. In Jesus' name, Amen.